Hello there and welcome to episode 7 of Family Law in the UK presented to you by Natasha Slabass, family partner at Sears Tooth. In this episode I look into the nature and function of fact-finding hearings in Children Act proceedings and I limit the uh, views I have and steps you should take to private Children Act proceedings only and not public Fact-finding hearings are sort of akin to many criminal uh, trials that take place within a family court heard by a family judge and they take place where there are issues of domestic violence and the family court is indeed obliged by virtue of a particular practice direction 12J of the Family Procedurals 2010 which imposes upon the judge a duty to investigate and iron out any allegations of abuse. And just to define abuse, in the practice direction 12J, uh, subparagraph 3, there are various definitions. And in domestic abuse, it says that This includes any incident or pattern of incidents of controlling, coercive or threatening behaviour, violence or abuse between those aged 16 or over who are or have been intimate partners or family members regardless of gender or sexuality. This can encompass but is not limited to psychological, physical, sexual, financial or emotional abuse. Domestic abuse also includes culturally specific forms of abuse, including but not limited to forced marriage, honour-based violence, dowry-related abuse and transnational marriage abandonment. So it's a wide-reaching definition that you have here. And so the courts will be looking at, from the outset of a case which has got issues of domestic abuse, whether or not those issues will go to the heart of the problem. So then one has to look at what the application concerns and if it concerns a Section 8 application for a child arrangements order and for more information on child arrangements orders then you can please listen to my former episode Five of series one, which looks at specifically lives with orders um, when one wants to regularise the time a child spends with the other parent and lives with them. So the court will, on receipt of an application, which is a C100 for a child arrangements order, also expect to receive, if there are issues of domestic abuse in the case, a form C1A. And I do go into detail about the C1A in my former episode on child arrangements orders. It is key that if you are making an application, that you consider from the outset whether a C1A, which is a schedule that the court will look through of all of the key incidents of abuse that you are alleging has been perpetrated by the respondent in the proceedings. So that document 
almost defines the direction for the court's next steps because the judge is going to be obliged by practice direction 12J to investigate forms of abuse which might have an impact on the child arrangements. And that comes back to the reason uh, for the court's uh, thinking in this way. It comes back to the paramountcy principle of underpinning the Children Act, which is that the welfare of a child is its paramount concern. And if there is any uh, risk that that might not be upheld because of abuse which has been uh, taking place either in the past or of which is ongoing, has a direct impact on the child who is the subject of the proceedings or the decision about whether the court should make a certain order, then the judge must conclude whether on the balance of probabilities those allegations are true or false. And from there, the welfare officer who will be appointed to investigate in the case will look at the result and decision which is formed in a judgment from the judge of the fact find and conclude on whether that in itself poses a serious risk to the child and usually the arrangements recommended are dictated from the outcome or decision of the fact find. So it's a crucial stage of the proceedings, the fact find hearing, but it's also a very stressful hearing to go through and the preparation involved is quite heavy. Now, the court will not automatically, it's worth pointing out at this stage, list a fact find based on historic forms of abuse. The court will have to distinguish between serious allegations, which, if true, would have a clear impact on the welfare of the child and about whether the court should make a certain order. And that should be compared and contrasted with less serious allegations, which might not have an effect on the eventual proceedings. So, for example, if you are saying that the respondent-to-be in the proceedings would cause abuse to your child through having abused you before the child's birth, the court may depending on the nature of the alleged abuse, and it always does depend on that, but bear in mind coercive control is considered as serious as the more um, obvious, let's say, forms of abuse, such as physical, um, and the court will, will have to think about whether or not that historic abuse is likely to have a direct impact on the child. And there you have a grey area which is very difficult for all concerned because if one thinks about it, where you have a perpetrator who has abused you and no form of abuse is acceptable, but you have obviously stuck it out with them for whatever reason, and you've had this child with them, and you've since separated, but there's no real 
abuse that you can pinpoint towards since that last episode, if it was pre-birth, then the judge might say that it is a remote incident when looking at the decision that they have to make, which is the impact of the abuse that could affect the welfare of a child. And it's an extremely difficult, difficult call to make, but that is where, you see, fact finds are only used where it is absolutely necessary because judges are reluctant to list fact-find hearings, which usually will take two days of court time as a minimum, which is a huge expense to the public purse, um, where the outcome is unlikely to really inform the court of the decision it has to make, which is how often a child should or should not spend time with the would-be respondent. So it's extremely important you think through carefully forms of abuse that you are relying upon from the outset in your C1A. And then at the first hearing dispute resolution appointment, the judge has a duty via PD12J to consider those allegations. And the court will allow for, if it lists a fact find, a Scott schedule which is basically a schedule uh, that is in the form of a table listing out each key episode and the judge may say that they're limiting the episodes to say 10 if there are lots and lots of things that have happened that you want to rely on because otherwise it would just be an endless um, set of days on end of going through allegations and if they limit it to 10, then you'll, you'll be expected to do a long statement in support of the Scott schedule. And you will have to refer to the parts of your statement where you detail the allegations which you summarise in the schedule. And the respondent-to-be will reply in that table and also in a substantive statement. And then that written evidence is all compiled into a bundle that the judge then has before the fact-find hearing. And the the cross-examination and examination-in-chief, when you are giving your witness evidence orally at the fact-find, will be reliant upon all of the written evidence that's accumulated between you and the respondent. So you'll gather there is a lot of work And there is a lot to consider if there are allegations of violence within Children Act proceedings that are being raised. And it can be a costly affair if you have to go through all of those via a fact find. And you should also be aware that you can use witness evidence to corroborate your allegations. Or if you're defending allegations equally, you can use a witness to assist you in demonstrating to the court that those allegations are not true. But you would need to make sure that you bring that to the attention of the judge when you're at court and the issue of whether or not the fact find is necessary is being determined because it will be necessary to include within any order listing that fact find the provision for detailed evidence 
and you'll need to make sure it's clear on the face of the order that you are permitted to include additional witness evidence. The court will usually not leave an open-ended order for you to use as many as you like and will usually limit you to a certain number of key witnesses or specific individuals if you say that there are any at the time of the hearing. So once you're at the fact find hearing, the court will have to consider various factors and (coughs) the main thing that the court will be looking at is all of the written evidence but also the judge will be listening to your oral evidence and the testimony given by the respondent and have to make a conclusion based on that, always looking back at Practice Direction 12J. Now, where fact-finding hearings can be really complicated is where it is difficult to list out in an A to Z fashion in your Scott schedule, examples of coercive control. The reason being that coercive control by its very nature will happen all of the time. It's a subtle form of abuse. So it will not be as clear as maybe physical abuse is and where you can name specific episodes because it will happen quite uh, morbidly all of the time. So there has been a case regarding those sorts of issues by Hayden and Mr Justice Hayden. And that case is a very recent one, judgment being handed down at the Royal Courts of Justice on 15th January 2021, and it is called F&M. And the neutral citation number is square brackets 2021, close square brackets EWF for Foxtrot C for Charlie 4. And that case involves what Lord Justice Peter Jackson referred to as an extremely difficult procedural history in the case. And there were some five lever arch files. In this case, Mr Justice Hayden had said that he strongly suspected that more focused training for the relevant professionals was needed as he had heard extremely disturbing evidence um, regarding cursive control. If I just go back to practice direction 12J, coercive behaviour is defined as a pattern of acts. Such acts will be characterised by assault threats, humiliation and intimidation but are not confined to this and may appear in other guises. The objective of these acts is to harm, punish or frighten the victim. Then there's another definition under 12J, controlling behaviour, a pattern of acts designed to make a person subordinate and or dependent, achieved by isolating them from support exploiting their resources and capacities to personal gain, depriving them of their means of independence, resistance and escape, and regulating their everyday activities. Then, when looking at Section 76 of the Serious Crime Act 2015, 
the offence of controlling or coercive behaviour in an intimate or family relationship is an offence committed if they repeatedly or continuously engage in behaviour towards the other person that is controlling or coercive and that at the time of the behaviour they are both personally connected and that the behaviour has a serious effect on the recipient and that the person perpetrating that defence knows or ought to know that the behaviour will have a serious effect on the recipient. And those two are personally connected if they're in an intimate relationship with each other, if they live together, if they're members of the same family, or if they've previously been in an intimate relationship with one another. This, in some ways, mirrors part of the associated persons criterion under the Family Law Act, which I referred to in episode 6 when turning to non-molestation orders and occupation orders, which you can listen to for more information. Now, further on into section 76, it defines that the perpetrator does not commit an offence if at the time of the behaviour they have responsibility as under Part 1 of the Children and Young Persons Act or if the recipient is under 16. So the next part is that the perpetrator's behaviour has a serious effect on the recipient if it causes the recipient to fear on at least two occasions that violence will be used against them or that it causes them serious alarm or distress, which has a substantial adverse effect on their usual day-to-day activities. And for the purposes of whether the perpetrator ought to know, that which a reasonable person in possession of the same information would know. And both people are members of the same family if they have or have been married to each other, they are or have been civil partners, their relatives, they've agreed to marry one another, whether or not the agreement has been terminated, they have entered into a civil partnership agreement, whether or not the agreement has been terminated, they're both parents of the same child, they have or have had parental responsibility for the same child. And there is a defence which is available, which is that if the perpetrator can show that in engaging in the behaviour in question they believed they were acting in the recipient's interests and the behaviour was in all the circumstances reasonable, then that might suffice. And a person is guilty of an offence under that section and liable if found guilty on conviction on indictment to imprisonment for a term not exceeding five years or a fine or both and on summary conviction to imprisonment for a term not exceeding 12 months or a fine or both. So the serious harm and distress caused is clearly now being taken seriously when you read through this judgment of Mr Justice Hayden. It has an alarming set of facts and abuse and it actually conjoins two particular women who had been the victims of coercive control from uh, the father um, and they had both given up their jobs or university. They had uh, become pregnant and were 
the first son was forced to uh, not terminate. He had effectively completely ostracised her from her parents and her friends and her family. He was purporting to be her when replying to messages by using her phone and on social media. And uh, it was really a horrific set of circumstances. And the judge in this case is, uh, I think he gives an outstanding judgment because it really helps those who are suffering under coercive control to have some sort of chance of getting justice in the family courts where there's usually a formulaic and prescriptive approach applied via a Scott schedule with A, B, C, D, E, F, G incidents, which simply is not how coercive control can be summarised. And so Mr Justice Hayden looks into this and he has criticised the family courts more or less for having not necessarily ever had to deliver a judgment like this before, not by virtue of there being a lack of cases, but simply because there is no judgment in this sort of detail that exists. So I hope that this sets a precedent for the the next steps in terms of family courts recognising this as a very serious uh, offence and that there will be a more vigorous and detailed approach applied and that there is some leeway and room given to those who are victims of coercive control uh, from the f- formulaic approach of having to pinpoint specific incidents and limit them and instead give a much more broad and general account which is absolutely necessary. You'll note that under the definition there needs to be more than one act so whilst it might happen all the time it may not happen all the time but as long as there are at least two incidents you can rely on that as coercive control. Mr Justice Hayden points out at the very last paragraph uh, as a postscript on fact finds that an intense focus on particular and specified incidents may be a counterproductive exercise. It carries the risk of obscuring the serious nature of harm perpetrated in a pattern of behaviour. This was the issue highlighted in the final report of the expert panel to the Ministry of Justice assessing risk of harm to children and parents in private law children cases. It is, I hope, clear from my analysis of the evidence in this case that I consider Scott schedules to have such severe limitations in this particular sphere as to render them both ineffective and frequently unsuitable. I would go further and question whether they are a useful tool more generally in factual disputes in family law cases. The subtleties of human behaviour are not easily receptive to the confinement and constraint of a schedule. I draw back from going further because Scott schedules are commonly utilised and have been given much judicial endorsement. I do not discount the possibility that there will be cases when they have real forensic utility. Whether a Scott schedule appropriate will be a matter for the judge and the advocates in each case, unless, of course, the Court of Appeal signals a change of approach. I would strongly urge anyone who is experiencing coercive control 
or is concerned about how to define it in terms of going forward with your case at court to read this case because it is extremely detailed and lengthy and it provides for quite shocking reading as well but very informative in its approach. So I hope you found this podcast helpful and if you have any queries you can always contact me via my Instagram which is at Natasha the Family Lawyer. Many thanks.